everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, as you may know, if you were here last week, uh, when, when we're a part of the church here, one of the things that we do around Christmas time is we celebrate what's called Advent. And this has been something that's been going on since the very beginning of the Christian church. And what Advent is, is it's just the celebration of the four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, Christmas morning as this time of preparation. The, the idea that the word Advent in Latin is literally translated as the arrival or the coming and it's like we're, we're preparing for Christmas morning, for the arrival of this baby. Prepare your heart. Like for, for four weeks, spend some time just cultivating a sense of wonder and like what, what is this event that's happening? But more than that, in the church, there's also been this sense of what does it look like to prepare when in our, this last sermon series that we've been in, in on, on the book of Matthew, where so many times we're hearing Jesus tell these stories where he's saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Nobody's going to know the time or the day, but be prepared. I'm coming back. And that for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're celebrating Advent, not just looking at a baby in a manger, but celebrating with a heart and a posture of like, any minute now, it could happen. Prepare. Where is your heart coming in to today? I think this is a time where there's the hustle and bustle. It's, it's a little bit crazy. All the plans are now starting to come together. Kids, for you, this, you may be getting ready for like your last week or two of school. College kids, your finals. Parents, for all of those things for your kids. It's coming. You may have gone Christmas shopping this weekend. It's coming. You may be continuing to get, figure out who's coming to our house on Christmas Day or what house are we going. It's coming. It's, it's all coming. And in the midst of all of these things coming... We pause. We say, what is it that's, that's coming? What is it that we get ready for and that we celebrate? Before we jump into today's message, I just wanted to give you a, a bit of a heads up that next week, as we continue our sermon series on Christmas lights, we're going to be doing something slightly different next week. Because to engage the light and to be looking at the light also means that there has been an encounter with darkness. And if you're also coming into this season of Christmas going, oh, I, that'll preach. <laughs> like, it, it has been a season of darkness for me. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time next week considering that darkness. And what does it mean if the light has come into those places? Where are the places where we engage suffering and lament and hardship and grief and are tempted to be hopeless? So just so you know, that's where we're going next week. But that's next week. Today we're looking at this idea of light. And I don't know about you, but my, my day so far even has been governed by light. When my alarm clock went off, I opened my eyes and there was a light there. My next move was to walk into my bathroom and turn on a light switch. As I got ready for my morning, I just went around turning on lights. When I got into the building this morning, the lights were on, the lights were on. Light governs our world today. And it's funny because the advent of modern light or a light bulb is still relatively new. There is a romance and also a, a wildness to considering what would it be like to live even just 200 or 300 years ago when candles or oil lamps or whale oil 
or the things that lit your home? What would it be like to know that your fireplace was the center of your house because when the sun went down, that's where not only warmth came from, but that's the only place in your house that had light. Can you get into that kind of a frame of mindset? And in England, hundreds of years ago, they were trying to figure out how do we not just light your home, but how do we make it safe outside? And they had lampposts. And there were people that were paid to go around every single evening and light these lampposts. They were called Learys. That was the, that was the official like, street name for a lamplighter. You were a Leary. Do you know that there's still people doing this today in Britain? It's, it's, they're still employed to go around lighting lamps. Here's a commercial from Britain Gas. Check this out. We are a little team, we are unique to British Gas. I would describe us as custodians of the lamps. People don't realise there's gas lights still across Westminster. There's 1,480 of these lamps. From 1813, we've been looking after the lamps under the Gas Lighting Coat Company, which is now British Gas. To get to the lamp themselves, you need a ladder. If you're walking about the streets of London, you might see a ladder chained to a gas lamp. When you put a set of ladders up in London, folks stop. And they're fascinated by the job that we do. We set the time of day the lamp comes on and goes off. And, yeah, we wind them up every 14 days. We get more and more requests now from architects who are wanting to modernise a building. The architects are adding in more of those original features which become the gas lamp. So you're getting a nice modern building looking old with a modern gas lamp. It's basically traffic that see, we get a lot of problems with, with the lamps when they get broken. And what we tend to do is take that lamp away, get it repaired, put it back. Sometimes put them back and leave them bent. If we keep putting it back, it's going to keep getting smashed. We take some underprivileged children round on a tour and we took them into a place called Goodwin's Court, which is very Dickens. It's got the bow windows. A lot of the, the movie teams will go there. And so we've got a lamp there. I've got three lamps here, but the lamp in the corner is the filming from Harry Potter where he was given his wand, which I think is, is diagonalia. We lovingly cherish these lamps every, every day, every week. The guys are out in all weathers maintaining them. You know, they love the job they're doing. As I clean the gas lamps, as I oil them, as I put effort into them, as I'm walking away and I, I look back and I watch them come on, I, I still, to this day, I think, how beautiful do they look? Me personally, you know, I can't think of a better job in the world. Can you hear the pride that they talk about their job with? For hundreds of years, I stand in a heritage of people that have been driving around, walking around London, lighting lamps. 1,490 lamps that they still have in London. Isn't that amazing? People are going around still lighting these. We're, as, as the more we invent different ways to experience light, there's still something in us, even movie producers, even architects are going, can you take me back to that? And I love what they said right out of the gate. I don't know if you caught it, but they said, I, I think that it's best said that we're custodians of the light. That's how they like to see themselves. They're, they're not just holding up a match, but they're fixing the lamppost. They're making sure that it shines through. They've got a really cool job. And when you think about it, of course, it's an important job because what does light do? I mean, whether it's a lamppost in Britain or whether it's something in your house, you can picture a nightlight for a kid. You could picture high beams on your car as you're driving through the country with no other lights. 
have a friend of a friend, her name's Susie. She lives in New York City and she has a dog and she's just used to taking her outside. And once she went to go visit some family in Missouri where there were no lights outside and her dog would not go outside to pee at night because the dog was like, where's New York? I need the light. Like, I'm not going out there. It's terrifying. What does light do? Well, it, it helps us see where we're going. Like quite literally, so you just don't trip. It helps us see what's around. But oftentimes it's because we're looking for where are the monsters, where are the villains, and what's safe. It helps us know what's true and what's obscured. When something is lit up, you can perceive it accurately. Light scatters things that love darkness. It helps us not only see each other, but to move together in unison. And ultimately, light helps us get to where we're supposed to be. We're in this series called Christmas Lights, and we're just taking these pauses as we head into this season of Advent to go, what is coming? What are we preparing for? And, and really, our core text for this morning is one verse. But to understand it, you're gonna need to get out your shovel because we gotta dig a little bit. But we're gonna be in John chapter eight, And I would love, if you brought your Bible today, turn there, and as we're popping around to different places, just keep your finger in John 8. We're gonna be in verse 12. And I just want this verse to wash over you with each iteration as we dig and dig together. In John 8, 12, it goes just like this. You saw it on the screen already this morning. And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a funny uh, scripture. Right, right after this, there's a whole bunch of religious leaders who are with Jesus going, hold on, hold on, hold on. You can't just say things like that. Like, you have to qualify that. There have to be people who have witnessed. Like, if you're going to say that you're the light, says who? I had a really funny encounter with a, a friend, a young friend who had gone off to college at CU. And one of the things, he was really tripped up. He came back home for Christmas, actually, and He said, we were going through scripture in one of my religious studies classes and my professor pointed out, Jesus never says that he's God. And that's like my professor's reason for why he doesn't believe. And it's funny because that's, it's a very Western thing to say, I need to see the words, I am God. But I think as we go through things uh, today, you're gonna continue to see over and over again. Jesus is like kind of standing up straight with his chest out going, I am the light of the world. And that, the, the gravitas, the weight that that carries, what he's actually saying in the midst of that is as astounding. To understand what's going on, we have to back up the tape in John just a little bit. So if you would go there, I'm just going to give you one little snapshot. But when chapter 7 starts out in the book of John, we have Jesus back at home with his family, with his brothers. Do you know Jesus had brothers? So often at Christmas, we just see one baby in the mage and we're like, hey, he's an only child. He had, he had siblings, brothers and sisters, pretty well. He's a grown man. He's back at his house and his brothers are preparing to go down to Jerusalem for what's called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of the Booths. This is a really important Jewish holiday. And they're talking to Jesus and they're going, hey, you're going to come down with us, right? Like maybe this will be your time where you're going to show everybody who you are. And Jesus starts out at the very beginning of chapter seven. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to go down there. But then this kind of funny, like, what were you doing there, Jesus? His brothers leave, and then he, like, starts packing his lunch and throws his backpack on, and he actually does go down to the Feast of Tabernacles. And where we catch up to our story is actually in verse 37. 
Uh, and it goes like this, John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let everyone who is thirsty come to me. A couple moments later, he'll be making the statement in the same place, I am the light of the world. Now, the, the, there's so much incredible goodness that comes with him saying, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me. That's its own statement. We don't have time to unpack that today. We're just focused on the statement that he's making about light. But holy smokes. As people who are reading this today, it, it's John 7:37 that you probably read, that I read, if I'm, if I'm not doing any more digging, and I go, Okay, great. I don't know what any of those things mean. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the great day. It's the last day. Get on with the story, John. And John, as a writer, is going, no, no, no. I, I, just, I, gave, like, I just set the stage, the arena, the stadium in which the story is happening. I just built it for you. And to us, we're walking around in what looks like a barren field. Like, what, what is going on here? I don't understand. To understand the setting of what Jesus is saying and how he's saying it is huge. So, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? And what does it have to do with light and what's going on? If you're ready, you ready to go on a journey? This is gonna be so fun. This is so fun. To understand the Feast of Tabernacles, we have to go way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. This story had begun where God's people, the nation of Israel, had, had become something, they'd also become enslaved by the nation of Egypt. And they were being horribly oppressed. And you may have heard this story, but if you haven't, the, the big idea is this whole nation of people, they just continue to cry out to God, deliver us, save us from the situation that we're in. And it says in the book of Exodus, God heard their prayer. He saw them and he came down and he did something about it. We have these incredible events. If you've ever, if you've never, I should say, seen the movie Prince of Egypt, it's, it's a fine snapshot that can catch you up on this story. Uh, even if you have seen it, it might be a great Christmas movie to watch this year because of what Jesus is saying here in John 8. But this nation of Israel finally gets permission from Pharaoh to leave, quite begrudgedly, I might say. And they come to the edge of the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, as we might read it better, and they're stuck and Pharaoh has now changed his mind and is coming with his enemy and he's just gonna slaughter everybody. And there's this sense from the leader of the Israelites, from Moses, of like, we're done for unless God, you show up and do something. And this pillar of fire shows up. And this pillar of fire protects them as the sea spreads into two and these people walk to safety. But the pillar of fire doesn't just stop there. This, this pillar of fire was, was a huge metaphor for this Israelite nation. And we're gonna catch up to our story in Exodus chapter 13. Now again, if you've got your Bible and you've got your finger in John 8, I don't want you to go back to Exodus. Just hear the story. I want your eyes to be lasered in on Matthew 8, or John 8, 12. He says he's the light of the world. What does that mean, given this story? And the story in Exodus 13 says this. Exodus 13, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer, for God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. 
the Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites saying, God will surely take notice of you. And then you must carry my bones with you from here. They set out from Succoth and they camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So it's not just this moment where this pillar of fire comes down and protects them for a time. This pillar of fire for this young nation that's coming out of slavery, it becomes their guiding light. Whether by day, and, and you have, like when you visualize it, if it's this pillar of fire, what comes off of fire? It, it's smoke. It's going to look like a cloud. So this cloud is leading them when the sunlight is there, and when the sunlight is gone, then you just see the fire, and you can follow it all the time. And it's important, as we read that verse too, that there's like a sensical place that these people should go. God, God says right out, of the, right out of the gate, I'm gonna, like, if they went the normal path, if they took the highway, they would end up in, in Philistia. They would end up embattled with the Philistines. They would be involved in a war. And a war that may even tempt them because war is so awful. It might tempt them to say, what's better, to be at war or to go back into slavery? Let's go back into slavery. But this is, this is the normal path. I mean, when you look at it on a map, even today, this is the line that you draw to go. If we need to get from point A to point B, we've got to go right through here. And God is saying, I have to lead these folks because they've got to go by a different way if they're going to make it to where we're going. So he manifests himself in a pillar of fire, in a nightlight, in high beams, so that they can get to where they're supposed to go. And I think it's, it's incredible to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are walking around at this time because you're terrified. You've been a slave your whole life. You're being chased by an army and all of a sudden, you're in the middle of a wilderness trying to get to somewhere that you really don't understand where it is. You've never been there before, nor has anyone else who's with you. And this pillar of fire shows up. And you have a choice. I can either strike out on my own and go the way that I think makes the most sense, or I can follow this thing. And man, of course you're going to follow this. Look at it. It's not just fire. It's not just light. It is hope. It is direction. It is leadership. It knows what's right. I'm following that. That's the mindset that these people get in. And as, as we do that, if, if they didn't have that, they would have gone the way that would seem natural to them. And this is a huge tension for us as we read this story today. So many of us live our lives like this today where we find ourselves in the wilderness and we just start looking down at the ground going, well, I guess I'll just figure it out as I go along. One of the invitations of this story is how do you pick your eyes up to go, God, where do you want me to go next? And you wait until he shows up. 
as the story progresses, and you may be going, what does this have to do with a festival of booths or tabernacles? This people now, they're in the middle of the desert and they're gonna follow God now for years to come, this pillar of fire. And so they construct these tents. I mean, they're, they're nomadic. They're this, this culture that's just this constantly moving campsite. And so years later, as they've become now established as a nation in the nation of Israel, with Jerusalem as their capital, with a temple that kind of is like the city center, the epicenter not just of their nation, but of their religion, there was something in what God had set up years ago where he said, every single year, I want you to set up booths and I want you to live in those booths for a week because I want you to remember what your life is supposed to be like. Your life today, regardless of the house you live in, regardless of the job you have, your life is ultimately reflected in this idea that you are a pilgrim, that the place where you are living now is temporary, and that the person that you're following to get you through this journey is me. Every single year, I want you to live in a tent. And this is amazing. If, if you're Jewish, if you've grown up around Jewish people, even if, they still do this today. Jewish people will still, every single year, they will build at a certain time in the calendar in the fall. They'll build these booths and they'll live in them for a week. It's remarkable. And that is why. So now, as we start to bring everything together, things may now start to make sense a little bit. Because when is Jesus saying that he is the light of the world? Uh, it's at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The great day, as John would say. But more than that, this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Holy smokes, y'all. Like, if there was ever a party, these folks knew how to throw a party. This day would begin with the most righteous men in town. And we're talking hundreds of people dancing in the streets, singing songs at the top of their lungs. This is like the Macy's Day Parade times infinity. It's huge and loud and wild. And the whole time, everybody has come into town. They needed, they had these ranks of priests and they all lived kind of in their own areas and they had certain months or weeks of the year where they would come and they would work in the temple and then they'd go back home. This festival, they call every, like all hands on deck. Like this is the biggest, the biggest event that we're gonna do. That's the, and, but then they would, to, to remember this pillar of fire in the temple in Jerusalem, they had these, these pillars, these candlesticks. And there were four of them, and each one of these four had four basins in it. So there's 16 different lamps that are in this place. And the wick that they would use would be the old garments from the priests. So picture like a full-on bathrobe, probably a couple of them, rolled up, and that's the wick to a candle, right? Like, this sucker's big. And to scale it for you a little bit, I said that they were candlestick. These things are 75 feet tall, gold-plated, remarkable. Here's a photo that I took. Um, this, is what, this is something of, to what it would look like. They're these gigantic pillars. And when you would light them at night, and again, put yourself in a frame of reference where street lights that turn on with a switch don't exist. You have candles and a bonfire. That's as much as you have. When these things that are 75 feet tall who have wicks that are this big around, 16 of them lit up inside a temple that is mainly white stone, this thing shines out like crazy at nighttime. It's amazing. It's the pillar of fire. 
That's why they would do this. It was this remembering of this whole story. We're going to live in a tent all week, and we're going to be reminded every night when we light these suckers up who it is that we're following on this journey. And, and the, the temple would light up, and the whole city around, it would be the light of Jerusalem. It would be the light of Israel. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And it is a little bit funny that Jesus doesn't come into this scene and say, I am the light of Jerusalem. And he doesn't say, I am the light of Israel. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you feel it now? What John is doing as he's setting the scene, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. The lights are on all night long. People are dancing on the last day because we're just so glad that we don't have to wander in the darkness anymore. And all of a sudden, this little punk rabbi from Nazareth walks into the middle of this whole scene in the temple. He's right in the middle of these lights. He said, "Uh, excuse me, I have something to say. I'm the light of the whole world. And of course, then, all the religious leaders are going to be like, hang on a second. Like, you got to be able to prove that. You just can't go around saying that. And Jesus has chosen his place and his time with perfection. So, are you with me? Are we good? Do you want to go deeper? Because there's more. Like, this, this story continues. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is the light. Unmistakable. He's the one. But as the story continues, we see this man go on trial and be crucified and killed and then resurrected. And for several weeks, he comes back to his students and to people who have been listening to him. And he begins setting up, okay, here's the church. Here's what you guys are going to do. And then the day comes where he ascends back to heaven, as the Bible records for us. That's chapter one of the book of Acts in brief. Chapter two, like the next step of like, now what do we do? The very next part in the story goes something like this. And again, if you've got your finger on John 8, 12, keep it there and keep letting those words wash over you as you understand what does this mean? Acts two, verses one through 15. This is the very beginning of the Christian church. And it says this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, from heaven, there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in their native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt. That's a lot to say. That feeling good this morning. 
and parts of Libya belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Ar- like everybody is at this party. Everybody's here. How are we all hearing this in our own languages? We hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. (laughs) It is amazing how many times Christians get confused as just being drunk people. Probably not enough, frankly. There's a critical distinction that I want to make sure that you catch here because I think a new age world that we live in might say, well, now you have become the light. You are, you, you're it. It is, it is you. And I want you to understand and see in this story from the book of Acts that when this young church is beginning, it is a, it is a pillar of fire that comes from heaven that divides and then it rests on each of them. And because of that now, they ha- like the Holy Spirit comes into them, the Spirit of God, the essence of who God is, comes into their soul, into who they are, and now suddenly they are speaking in languages that they have not spent time on Babel learning how to do. They just are doing it. God has gifted them with this ability. It is not them that are the core, that are the center, that are the beginning point of this light. This light has been given to them and it lives inside of them. And it is the Holy Spirit. It is God himself. He is still the light. But like in our pictures, instead of the light being something, this pillar that we used to follow, or instead of it being at this temple, the light has now changed its location. And the light now resides in those that choose to follow Jesus. It has divided and it has gone out. One of my favorite, favorite moments when we celebrate Christmas Eve is when we light candles. And it, it just captures the, visually this moment of, man, it's great when there's a spotlight or when we have one big bonfire. How much more beautiful when we're each holding a flame? And how much more beautiful, how much more light happens in the world when it's not just in one central place, but when each of us carries that candle and goes out into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces and into the world. And in this story, the first story that we get of the church, we see what Jesus was up to in John 8 and what God was up to in Exodus. It's amazing. Because what is it? It's God's presence with us. The Hebrew word for that is Emmanuel. We celebrate that he is with us. He's with us as a, as a group. He is with us as individuals. It's remarkable. So this leaves us with the question, who is the light of the world? I mean, it's Jesus. But there's also this sets from Acts, like, is it something else? In our study on the book of Matthew, We actually hit one other place that even confuses that question even more. It's in Matthew chapter five. And this is Jesus talking to a room full, a a whole hillside full of students. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that you may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. Who is the light of the world? 
Who's the leery? Who's the one that walks around giving light to dark cities? Well, it's Jesus. But just like we've tracked the story of this pillar of fire, this Jesus has now put himself into and onto every single one of us that choose to follow him. Jesus is the light of the world, but he is in you, and he's available to you. And man, if you're somebody who doesn't know, like, I don't know where I'm at with Jesus. I don't know what to do about following him. I think this can be kind of a a weird message because it kind of feels like, well, just follow Jesus. It'll be fine. Like, it's good. What we don't have time to get into, and what I would invite you, go back and check out the series that we did on the book of Matthew. How he taught us to live and what he taught us to do It's like watching a Leary walk around a city and going, let me show you how to turn on the light. And then let me show you again and again and again. And now, and at points, he starts handing over the lighting stick and saying, okay, now you do it. This was always his goal. When we confess that he has come, when we confess that he's coming again, when we confess that he is with us and in us and is still guiding us, we recognize that God has come down to earth. He is amongst us on earth. He's still guiding us. He's the light of the world, not just to some, but he's put a light in us. And what does that light do? What's it supposed to do? Well, light helps us see where we're going so that we don't trip. We help each other see what's around, the monsters and the villains and what's safe. When we have light in us, it helps us help each other know what is true and what is obscured to make sure that we perceive accurately. When we carry light in us, we help scatter the things that love darkness away. When we have light in us, we help each other not only see each other, but move together. And ultimately, when we have light in us, when the light of Jesus Christ lights our way, ultimately, we help each other get to where we're always supposed to be. If we're going to do this effectively, it's not enough just to know about this Jesus. There's a step of courage that comes with finding yourself lost in the wilderness and saying, I don't know what to do, and I don't know where to go, and I don't know what I'm supposed to be. And then to look up and say, God, where are you? And how can I find you and join you there? And where are you taking me? And the courage then comes when you hear this Jesus speak, that you take the step out the doorway, that you don't take the highway to Philistia, but that you're willing to say, God, wherever you go, I will follow. That's courage. And it's beautiful. As I welcome Dan back out, I wanted to end with a poem and a brief benediction. The poem is by a guy named Robert Louis Stevenson, which you might hear and go, oh, I know that name. Where did I know that name from? He wrote Treasure Island. Robert Louis Stevenson had a really interesting spiritual life. He grew up in a home uh, that went to church in Scotland. Jesus was a huge part of his world in college. He kind of did the college thing where he fell away from his faith for a while. 
in his mid-20s, wrote a letter to his dad saying, you know, I've seen a lot of the world now. At this point, he was living in the Pacific Rim. Seen a lot of the world, and I just, I, I can't keep going without understanding that Jesus is real and that the Bible is trustworthy and true. And so I'm coming back to my faith. His dad lost his mind. But one of the poems that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote was a poem called The Lamplighter. And it goes like this. My tea is nearly ready and the sun has left the sky for it's time to take the window to see Leary going by for every night at tea time and before you take your seat with lantern and with ladder, he comes posting up the street. Now Tom would be a driver and Maria go to sea and my papa's a banker and as rich as he can be but I, when I am stronger and can choose what I'm to do, oh Leary, I'll go round at night and light the lamps with you. For we are very lucky with a lamp before the door. And Leary stops to light it as he lights so many more. And oh, before you hurry by with ladder and with light, oh, Leary, see a little child and not to him tonight. May we, like this child, not only be enamored with the one who brings light to the world around, but may, may we always seek to be like Jesus, to join him in his work and to be custodians of the light by both being and bringing light into dark places. Merry Christmas. As you prepare for the arrival of Jesus, know that you are preparing for the arrival of a pillar of fire who says, I am a light to you. And I am a light to your community. I'm a light to your family. And I am the light of the world. For those that are able, you can stand and let's sing.